It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. Hi, Kat. Hello. Now, coming up this week, how a lung scanner has shown scientists why Stradivarius violins sound so good. Also, how cuttlefish can learn what to eat even when they're still inside their eggs. And talking of food for thought, when it comes to diet food, why small portions might actually be bad news because it turns out that they encourage you to eat more, not less. And we'll be finding out why in just a moment. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're looking at the cognitive cogs that control the clock that gets you up in the morning and sends you to sleep at night. It's not your alarm clock, it's your body clock. It's also the reason why we feel jet-lagged when we go on holiday and why some people get depressed in the winter months. And surprisingly, it's not just animals that have body clocks. Plants do as well, which could explain why some plants won't grow well outside their native habitats and could also be very important if we ever want to grow plants in space to sustain our astronauts. Certainly true. Thank you, Kat. And talking of body clocks and going to sleep, this week's question of the week is extremely dreamy. My question is about dreams. I was wondering why it's so difficult for us to remember our dreams when we wake up in the morning. Well, it certainly happens to me. And why is it always the bad bits that you remember and not the good ones? Well, if you've got a question for us, do get in touch. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off with a look at the week's science, as we always do. And here's a very exciting story, which is published this week in the journal PLOS One, and it comes from the Netherlands and also from Arkansas, because two researchers have got together, Beren Stoll, uh, and he's a researcher based in the Netherlands, and also Terry Borman, who is a maker of, of violins from Arkansas. And the two of them decided to try and look into the question of why Stradivarius and Guarnari violins sound so good. Now, the researchers in the Netherlands have been developing systems for scanning lungs, because when people develop lung disease, it's very useful to know uh, something called the lung density. Now, this is the size of the air spaces in the lungs, because when lungs are damaged by things like cigarette smoking, the size of the air spaces, the alveoli, can increase. And the bigger they are, the less good they are at putting oxygen into the bloodstream. So having an, an accurate measurement of that can help to, to show how well someone's lungs are responding to therapy or how much they've deteriorated. And this can help people to have some kind of prognostic information about the state of their disease. Now, what these researchers decided to do was to measure the wood density in seven ancient, sorry, five ancient violins, 300 years old, both a Stradivarius and and also Guarneri violins. Now, Del Gezu, who is Guarneri, they're both um, incredibly good violin makers, dating back to the early 1700s to the mid-1700s. Their violins are valued in the millions and viewed as the best violins the world has today. But why do they sound so good? Well, what these researchers did was to scan the wood from these violins in these CT scanners, and the amazing thing they discovered when they compared the wood to wood from violins made today by Terry Borman was that the differential density of the wood, in other words, the, dis- the difference between wood that, that was formed in the spring and wood that was formed in the winter time in the wood, was very, very small, very little difference in the ancient violins, and it was very, very big in the more recently made violins. So what's causing that? Is it some kind of climate change or... You know, uh, has something happened to the trees? Well, when you look at how trees grow, they tend to grow very fast in the spring and the wood that they lay down tends to be very porous. It's very open. It tends to be weaker than the denser, harder, firmer wood that they lay down towards the end of the season and in the winter time. And so what the researchers are suggesting is that either there was some kind of climate thing which made the trees grow differently in this part of Italy in the 1700s, which sounds a bit unlikely 
but not impossible because there was a climate phenomenon called the Maunder Minimum around this time and this was a period of very low solar activity. There were far fewer so- sunspots around this time than there would be normally. So it was colder, it was a few degrees colder and this may have affected the growth of wood. They're suggesting that's one possibility. But another researcher who is called Joseph Nodjvari, he's Emeritus Professor at Texas A&M University in, in America, he had a paper in Nature a few years back where he had analysed the wood from Stradivarius violins from tiny fragments from where people had had their violins repaired and his analysis using spectroscopy showed that the wood had been chemically brutalised and his thoughts were that people around this time knew how to add various chemicals perhaps iron or copper to the wood which broke down the cross links between the wood which would have accounted for this reduction in density seen by these researchers and this changed the acoustic properties why were they doing that well it could be that in fact it was an early effort to chemically preserve the wood because other people have noticed that furniture made in Cremona in Italy this bit of Italy never gets woodworm even today and so it could be that bathing the wood in these salts had a side effect of making it sound great, but it was mainly done to preserve it. <laughs> the irony that they weren't really aiming for a good sound. Anyway, has that, has your imagination ever run away with you, Chris? Many times. Many times, because I, I recently had a problem with moths in my house, and for a while afterwards I was just convinced that I could see moths everywhere. But luckily I'm not going mad, because researchers from Vanderbilt University in the US have now proved that what you can see with your mind's eye might actually have an impact on what you see in reality. And this is the first study to show that imagination something can change your vision. So to test how this actually works, the scientists asked some volunteers to imagine simple patterns of either vertical or horizontal stripes. And then they showed volunteers a green horizontal stripy pattern to one of their eyes and then a red vertical stripy pattern to the other eye. Now, at the, the br- same time? Yeah, at the same time. Now, the brain gets very confused when you do this. and you, surprised. And you can't concentrate on either of the patterns, so your vision tends to just flick between vertical stripes, horizontal stripes, flick, flick, flick. You can't really focus. But they found that people who'd been thinking of vertical stripes before the experiment were actually could focus on the vertical stripes and were more likely to see those. Whereas if people had been thinking about horizontal stripes, then they tended to see horizontal stripes. And what and, do they think is going on? Well, it's not really very clear at the moment because there's been studies done before looking at people who are imagining things and putting them in a brain scanner and you find out that the area of the brain associated with visual you know, visual perception is active when you're imagining something, so it is linked to vision. But this is the first way that we've really had of measuring almost how imaginative a person is and how much their imagination can affect their vision. So now this can become a tool for further studies of the imagination and the impact of that. Are there similar studies done with other senses? Could you do the same thing with, say, hearing, an equivalent of that? That would be really interesting, yeah. I don't know if anything's been done in that area, but that would be absolutely fascinating if you were thinking of a sound then um, would you be more likely to hear it? We're talking of how the brain works. This one's certainly food for thought. It's a piece of research which has been published from the University of Tilburg. This is Rick Peters and his colleagues. And they've been looking at the impact of snack foods and diet portions on your waistline. Uh Uh, As most researchers do, they used their students because they're cheap (laughs) and they don't ask for money. They'll do anything for a bag of crisps. In this case, they certainly did. They got 140 students and they divided them into two groups. One group were given two very large bags of crisps. The other group were given nine small bags of crisps. And they were recruited being told, this is a study all about television advertising. Now, with those two groups, the big bag and the small bag groups of students, were, were then divided into further two groups each, half of them were weighed very visibly in front of a mirror. And the researchers say this is to put them into a diet-conscious mindset. It would certainly have that effect on a number of people, I would think. But the other half were just told to 
plonk themselves on the on the couch and start watching telly. And what they did was to tot up how many crisps the students in both these groups over time actually ate. And at the end of the study, the ones they didn't weigh, i.e. the non-diet conscious group, about 75% of them opened their small bags of crisps and about 50% of them opened the big bags of crisps. But critically, they ate the same amount of crisps if, if they opened the big bags or the small bags. So just how many they fancied, really. Yeah. Then you turn to the ones that they put into this diet-aware state by weighing them very visually in front of a mirror. Now, those showed very different results. 25% of them opened their big bags, but they actually ate the people who opened their little bags, 59% of whom opened their little bags, ate far more than the people who opened the big bags. So they're thinking, oh, it's only a little one, I'll just have another. And what the researchers conclude is that by putting things into prepackaged small portions, what this does when you're trying to be conscious about how much you eat, you assume that someone has made the choice about how much you should or shouldn't eat of something, and therefore it kind of means you can lower your dietary or caloric guard, and you end up overeating far more than you would do normally. So in fact, the, the instance here, or the, the sort of suggestion from this study, is when it comes to diet foods uh, more is actually less by the look of it because that seems to contradict some other studies that have found that if you give people little portions they'll they'll eat less but i guess was that because they weighed people first and put them in that frame of mind this is what they're saying that if you put people into a diet aware state and then offer them what appears to be the better solution the small portion in fact that is why you then end up eating more. Whereas if people are conscious about how much they're eating in total rather than doing it by portion, you do it by physical number of calories. That, that is a successful way to lose weight if you actually know how many calories are in something. But if you're doing it by the size of the portion, they're saying that the marketing is very clever. It makes people think they're eating less so they'll actually end up paradoxically eating more. Oh, those cunning marketing people messing with our minds. Anyway, a completely different story now about cuttlefish. Now, for most animals, life before birth is a very dark experience. Humans are trapped in the womb for nine months, and even animals and birds that hatch from eggs don't really get much light coming to them. But now, new research shows that cuttlefish may not be in the dark in the same way. Now, when cuttlefish eggs are laid, they're stained black with ink, but as the embryos develop, the eggs become see-through. Now, at this point, the baby cuttlefish's eyes are actually fully developed. So can they see the outside world? And that's what um, Anne-Sophie Darmiak and her team in France think they can. And they've done an experiment where they put cuttlefish eggs in a tank and suspended them so that they were in view of another tank that had crabs in or the other tank was empty. So it's crabs or no crabs. And basically when the cuttlefish hatch from their eggs, they float away so they can't see the tank of crabs anymore. And they took the cuttlefish that had been exposed to crabs or, or not to crabs and gave them a choice of would you rather eat crabs or shrimp? And normally most cuttlefish would rather eat shrimp, but the ones that had seen crabs while they were still in the egg actually all preferred crabs. We're assuming they can see them because how would the light possibly get... In because the, the, the egg is transparent and their eyes are fully developed, but it hadn't been known before that they were actually seeing and and processing this kind of stimulus. And they know that it's visual because the tanks were completely separate, so it's not some kind of chemical cue that's being given off by the crabs that the egg. And you don't think they got a fleeting glimpse when they came out of the egg and drifted down? Well, I think they did control for that, that kind of scenario, so it's definitely what they're seeing there. But what's the evolutionary but, point to this? Why should they have this amazing ability to, to learn to do this even when they're in an egg? Well, cuttlefish are really visual animals. All their communication is by changing patterns, changing colours. They're very visual creatures. And when they're laid, the, the parent cuttlefish just leave the eggs 
to fend for themselves. So it's probably getting a head start on feeding. If you can find out what looks good and what looks like dinner before you've even hatched, you'll probably do better at finding your dinner once you have hatched. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Kat. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're talking about the science of time and the body clock and also the plant body clock, how time and day length affects the growth of plants. That's this week's subject for discussion. So if you'd like to join us, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. And joining us on the telephone with a question that's sort of related to time is uh, Laura Eubank. Hello, you're Laura. Hi there. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. What Thanks. do you want to talk about? Um, I just wanted to ask a question about hair and why it stops growing and why some people can never have a haircut but, and their hair will just stop growing at like their shoulders. So how long is your hair? Have you got long hair? It's like just below my shoulders. Have you been consciously trying to grow it, or is this? Oh, it's not me. It's one of my friends. <laughs> That's a very good question. You know, why is it, for instance, that your hair that grows on your head can, in some people's cases, reach their waists, but people's eyelashes conveniently remain only a few millimeters long? Because if you had eyelashes that reached your waist, that would make seeing quite difficult, I would imagine. Similarly, pubic hair under your arms, for example, why does that stay short and curly and then drop out before it gets really, really long, whereas the hair on your head, again, can become very, very long? And the answer is it's all down to genes. And when you're developing as an embryo, your body develops as a series of segments, and written into those segments is a genetic pattern that tells that bit of the body where it is in the body, and anything that develops on that segment inherits that genetic pattern which dictates to it how it should grow and develop. And if you look at how hairs work, um, hairs have three phases to their life cycle. They have what's called an anagen phase, and this is where they grow, and the hair follicle has a number of stem cells that are very, very active, and they pump out keratin, which is the hair chemical, and the keratin forms a big polymer, which is a filament, the hair that you see. And after the anagen phase, which can last anything from days, in the case of, say, an eyelash, that's about two or three weeks, to a head hair, which can be three or four years, that, that determines how long the hair grows for and therefore its ultimate length, then the hair goes into what's called a catagen phase and that's where the follicle switches off and the hair actually falls out. And then there's a third phase, which is called the thedogen phase, when the follicle rests and then it resets the system and the whole thing starts again. So it's down to how long the hair grows for, the anagen phase, and that is determined by your genes, basically the genes that are programmed into the bit of the body that's got the hair in it. Cat. I was thinking, so if you had some kind of weird genetic mutation, you could have, you know, pubic hair that grew down to your ankles. Uh, yeah, I suppose if you similarly transplanted head hair to your pubic region or vice versa, you would get hair that had that behaviour because it had pre-programmed into it that way of growing. Freaky. Is that what you've had done? <laughs> no, no, that would no, explain I, a lot, though. I don't have pubic hair that reaches <laughs> to my ankles, Chris. I wouldn't know, Kat. <laughs> Laura, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. It's great thanks. to have you on The Naked Scientist. OK, thanks. See you later. Um, interesting question um, from Rolly Mandelbro, who's listening in uh, Second Life. He says, um, uh, can we actually hear before we're born? Um, I think the evidence suggests that you probably can. Um, obviously, it's not sort of hearing as in the sense that, that born people hear, because that's all to do with air pressure. But I think there's a lot of evidence that babies can really sense the vibrations in the fluid yeah. um, that's around their, their ears. And the US Navy did a around. study about five years ago where they took... Uh, lambs that were developing inside the mother and they put a miniature microphone inside the ear of the developing lamb and another one in the fluid surrounding the lamb and then a microphone outside the sheep and they played sounds using a speaker and recorded from those three sites and then they played back the sounds they recorded to a group of volunteers and asked 
them how much they could interpret from what they'd just heard from these recordings. They understood 100% of what was said using the microphone outside the sheep's body. They understood about 75% of what they recorded using the microphone sitting in the fluid around the baby inside the sheep. And they understood a good 30 or 40% of what was being said from the recordings in the ear of the baby sheep. So what this suggests to you is that, in fact, you should be very careful when you're talking around a pregnant woman because <laughs> no the baby swearing. may well be eavesdropping. As we said, that was a question from Second Life, and we do beam this programme live into Second Life. That's from 6pm UK time, and that's 10am in Second Life time. So if you want to come and meet us, um, meet our other listeners, and hello to anyone who is listening in Second Life right now, then you need to go into Second Life, if you're one of those cyber people that likes doing that, um, visit the Psyland, and then search for the Naked Scientist you can drop by Naked Scientist Towers, you can relax on one of our sun lounges and you can listen to the show and chat along. It's really interesting. I wasn't here last week because uh, I was off having a baby. Well, actually, my wife was having a baby. <laughs> looking good I for was it, Chris. allegedly helping. Um, <laughs> allegedly. And so I, I sort of did actually join in on Second Life and it was amazing to see all these people sort of beaming in from all over the place and, and it's a really good uh, little community that's going on there. So it's great to, to have them along. Um, one thing that I meant to mention to Laura with the hair, hair thing was an interesting thing I picked up this week. There's a company in America, they're called... Allegan, they're the company that actually brought you Botox, not brought you Botox because you wouldn't use something like that. But <laughs> yeah, they, they invented me and my wrinkly face, the concept my of pubic, marketing yeah. of Botox to iron out wrinkles on your face. Um, they've actually also got a, a drug for glaucoma, which is this eye pressure problem where you have too much pressure inside your eye and this can damage your optic nerve. There's a drug called Lumigan, which can be used to treat that. The actual generic name is Bimatoprost for this. And what they found is that one of the side effects is that it makes your eyelashes grow longer in some people. So they're actually applying to the FDA, that's the Drug Administration Group in America, for permission to market this as an eyelash lengthener. The slight downside is that it also makes your eyes get darker and it also makes your eyelids get darker and the effect can be permanent. So not only will you have luscious lashes, you will also potentially have darker eyes uh, and darker eyelids. And if you don't use the same amount on both eyes, the effect can end up being non-symmetrical so, so like you could have a sort of panda, David basically. Bowie effect you yeah. look like this weird panda which could be a bit dodgy there, there you go so if you want to join in on The Naked Scientist the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com and still to come on today's show we'll be finding out how a cascade of chemicals sets our body clock and even how plants may suffer from jet lag First, though, time for a bit of kitchen science, as we do every week. And Ben and Dave are at Stewart's School, which is in Harlow, with this week's experiment, which is all about the chemistry of candles and the physics of flames. Hello and welcome to this week's kitchen science. We are at Stewart's Science Specialist School in Harlow, and I've got Dave Ansell with me. Hi, Dave. Hi, Ben. I've also got Jamie and Richard. Hello, Richard. Hi. Hello, Jamie. Hi. So, what year are you in? I'm in year eight. I'm in year eight as well. What do you like about doing science at school? Uh, I mainly like doing the experiments, but I don't mind doing writing either. I like the experiments. They're fun and it's better than writing. (laughs) Okay. well, as you probably know at home, Dave and I are very keen on science experiments. And of course, we brought one with us today. And Dave, I can see that you've brought a candle with you today. So is this another one of those burning things experiments that you enjoy so much? I do like burning things. It's exciting and generally very interesting. Burning is a very interesting process. It is a fantastic bit of chemistry and physics going on. So what are we doing today? We're actually going to be looking at how burning works using a candle and a cold glass. So we have a a pint glass, I can see, and we have a candle that you've put in a bowl, for obviously for safety reasons. So is this something safe for people to do at home, or is this probably one they best avoid? You could do this at home. Obviously, using a candle, things might get a bit hot, so be careful you don't burn yourself. So bearing that in mind, what are we doing? Okay. first of all, we want to light a candle... We've got a candle lit, and what's next? 
You want to get a large jar or possibly a pint glass, turn it upside down over the candle and wait for a bit. Look very carefully at the jar and see what happens. Okay, then, Jamie, do you want to take our glass and turn it upside down and put it over the candle? So, Jamie, what do you expect you'll see? Um, the candle will probably go out. Yeah, Richard, do you think there'll be anything else happening? Uh, not really, no. Okay, well, if you want to try this out at home, just get a normal candle, put it in a bowl or something for safety, and then put something like a pint glass or a large jar on top of it. And bear in mind that it could get hot, but have a look, see what happens, and then let us know. We'll come back to you later on in the show. So if you want to have a go, just place a pint glass over a lit candle, watch what happens, do tell us. If you want to get in touch with any ideas about that or with any questions or comments, and today we're looking at the body clock, do get in touch with us. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. So if you want to get a shout-out, if you want us to say hello to you, then do drop us an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. And if you make it funny, we'll almost certainly <laughs> read it out because Kat loves things that titillate her. Titillation, yeah. Uh, this is an interesting question which has been sent in by Felix. And he says, is, is there a scientific way to measure human age which is equivalent to tree rings? Well, I was thinking about this because we talked on The Naked Scientist a little while back about how uh, researchers in... Um, Scandinavia have have worked out how long a fat cell survives inside the human body by using carbon dating because when you because uh, he's saying carbon dating can be used for rocks and things like tree rings to work out how old trees are what about humans well the thing is when you take into your body some plant matter it's got carbon-14 in it from the environment and that gets incorporated into your body and therefore it gets written into your DNA if you have new cells being born so what these researchers Kirsty Spalding and her colleagues did and they published this in Nature a couple of months ago, um, what they did was to, to take fat cells and look at how much carbon-14 they had in them. Because as your, carb- as your fat cells age, of course, they'll lose their carbon-14. And so the, the amount of carbon-14 gives you an idea as to how uh, recently that cell was born because it will have got new DNA put into it, which would have had a, a fresh level of carbon-14 in it when it was born. And so they did actually show that fat cells have a lifespan of about 10 years. There's another way of doing that, is to look at your telomeres. And uh, inside all our cells, we have chromosomes. These are long lengths of DNA. And at the end of them, in the same way that you have a little plastic cap on the end of shoelaces, you have these structures called telomeres. And these get shorter and shorter and shorter as we go through life. Every time a cell divides, it loses a bit off the end of its telomeres. So there may be some way of measuring human lifespan in terms of how long or how short your telomeres are. But the trouble is, is that there's no standard length and people have different length telomeres depending on their genetic makeup. And in fact, um, I know that Cancer Research UK is funding a project looking at how our genes determine our telomere length because it's actually linked to cancer risk. People who have very short telomeres, they're going to get shorter very quickly and that can actually increase the likelihood of things going wrong with your chromosomes and increase your likelihood of getting cancer. So you could look at a cell, see what the length of the telomeres are and that would give you some idea as to the age of that particular cell. It would give you some indication and maybe if you compared it to other cells in the body like maybe your germ cells that don't go through this kind of process, maybe that might be a good idea. Thank you, Kat. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And if you'd like to ask us any questions about the body clock, time, and how it relates to both humans, non-humans, and also plants, then get in touch. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani. We're talking about time, and we also talked earlier about the science of what happens when you play music or sounds 
and also other stimuli to things when they're in the egg or developing inside their mother. And Judith in North, Northampton got in touch to say her friend used to play the violin while she was pregnant, most notably Vivaldi or Bach, I'm sure that makes a big difference. Once the baby was born, whenever it heard a piece of violin music by Vivaldi or Bach, apparently it used to instantly fall asleep whilst other music would have no effect or might even make it cry. So the baby must have recognised the music, she says, from when it was in the womb. Absolutely intriguing. I, I guess then I should be encouraging my wife to do lots of hoovering when she's pregnant, and then it's easy to send the baby off to sleep because oh, then all she has to do is get the hoover out. Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. Anyway, <laughs> but um, if you've ever been on a long plane journey and ended up with jet lag, you'll know how confused you can feel for days afterwards. You don't know when to eat, when to sleep. All your regular bodily functions just go up the spout. And uh, basically, we're trying to find out today why this happens. Why is being in the wrong time zone having such a big impact on our bodies? And is there a way to reset our body clock so that we don't have to suffer? Let's find out. We are joined now by Professor Russell Foster. He's the head of circadian and visual neuroscience at Oxford University. Thanks for joining us. So let's start off by what do we mean by a body clock? What's actually going on here? Well, each of us uh, has an internal representation of a day, which uh, we use to fine-tune our physiology and behaviour to the varying demands of activity and rest. There's a very important structure right at the base of the brain uh, called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And if this this structure within the brain uh, is destroyed as a result, let's say, of a tumour uh, or some other ghastly accident, then these 24-hour rhythms uh, that, we, that we normally experience, like sleep-wake and, and all the rest of it, um, are lost. And the, this, this internal clock is in turn set by exposure to the light-dark cycle. Um, and so when we fly from, let's say, London to New York, uh, we eventually adapt to New York time because we experience the local light-dark cycle there and that talks to the SCN and that realigns um, our, our, our body clock to local time. How do these cells actually work, Russell, to, to keep time? Well, the, the, the clock cells, you mean, uh, or, or, the, or the light cells? Yeah, the clock cells. Well, that's been an incredibly sort of, sort of exciting area of research over the past uh, ten, 10 years or so. At its core, there's a feedback loop. A, a gene will produce its message, the message is then translated into a protein, and then that protein will go into the nucleus and turn off its own gene. And so it's like a switch. But the rate at which the gene is turned on, the rate at which the protein is produced, the rate at which the protein forms a complex of other proteins and then enters the nucleus um, are, are all critical in the development of, 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 of turning a switch into a 24-hour oscillation. So it's a bit like a sort of genetic domino effect where one gene turns on, turns on another one, turns off itself and the whole thing goes round in a, a 24-hour cycle. Absolutely right. And, and we knew that these, these SCN neurons had these 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 clock genes and those are about 12 to 14 that have been described so far but what's emerged relatively recently is that almost every cell in the body has the capacity to to have a have a circadian rhythm a 24-hour oscillation and so it's not that the scn is driving uh, a, a rhythmicity in the rest of the body it's acting rather m- more like a sort of a conductor producing a signal from which the the rest of the body takes its cue and aligns its activity according to the master clock in the brain and the, the significance of 24 hours, that's presumably because a day on Earth is about 24 hours. Exactly, yeah. And, and how does the clock get set in the first place? Well, that's something we've spent quite a bit of time working on. And 
It's turned out to be an extraordinary story. We started in the early 90s um, and we, we basically thought, you know, what visual cells in the eye, and, and they're the rods and the cones, are used to detect light and then set the clock to local time. And we started working on mice with hereditary retinal disorders where these rods and cones had broken down. And what was truly extraordinary is that although these mice were visually blind, they still had the capacity to regulate their body clocks uh, using the light-dark cycle. And we know it's in the eye because if you covered the eye and you, and you isolated the animal from the light-dark cycle, this, this response had, had, had gone. And uh, some 10 years later from that original observation, we now know that there's a third class of light sensor within the eye. It's a group of photosensitive ganglion cells which perceive light directly, send those messages into the brain and lock the SCN, the master clock, onto the, the, the light-dark cycle. And what sort of light do they respond to? Any old light or does it have to be a certain frequency? Mm. Well, they're most sensitive to light in the blue part of the spectrum at around about 480 nanometers and that's the sort of the blue that you get um, on a beautiful blue, um, uh, a, a blue um, a sky on, on a clear day. Why would they choose that particular wavelength, that's a, do we know? It's a really interesting question. If, if one were designing a system to detect environmental brightness, then you'd put it at 480 because that's where the dominant wavelength of light is within, within, the, within the environment, particularly at twilight. And, of course, it's twilight, dawn and dusk, where the clock really needs to sense light so it can lock um, the clock onto local time. Now, let's talk about people who I think probably I have a bit of this. When it gets towards winter time, I begin to feel a bit miserable. And it's become apparent that there is this thing, seasonal affective disorder, where people do almost sense the urge to almost hibernate at certain times of the year. Yeah. Th this is presumably some kind of clock phenomenon. It seems to be associated with the clock, yes. I'm just sort of a, a bit of background on, on, on SAD or seasonal affective disorder. As you, as you were saying, Chris, it, it tends to be more pronounced in the, in the winter months and around about 2 to 3% of people in the UK have be, are, are regularly diagnosed um, with SAD. If one goes further north, let's say to Tromso, where the sun dips below the horizon... <clears throat> on the 20th of November and then, and then comes back again on the 20th of, of January, about 27% of the population are diagnosed with, with, with SAD. Now, SAD is, is more than just the winter blues that, that, that you and I might experience. This is a, a, a really profoundly debilitating condition where carbohydrate, the craving for carbohydrates goes up enormously. Um, the need for sleep increases quite dramatically. Um, and so many people just simply don't have the energy to, to get out of bed other than to go to the fridge and consume huge amounts of carbohydrates. Do we know anything more about what's special about those people, why they get that? We don't. There are certain genes um, and indeed some of the clock genes that are beginning to be linked to this particular um, condition, but it's still early days yet. I think the really exciting thing for us is that we now know that light can have a real effect at alleviating some of the symptoms of, of, of SAD, which is above placebo. As you, as you know, um, most drugs have a placebo effect, and, and it can be as much as 20, 30 percent. Um, uh, but, but light treatment, particularly morning light treatment, is, is, is better than placebo. So it looks to be a real phenomenon that is being regulated by light. I've got a host of emails for you. Uh, Rolling Kent, who's actually listening in Mexico, says, do blind people have depression, along the lines of what you've been talking, because of light deprivation? Well, that's, I think it's such an interesting idea because we've shown that if, if you... In fact, we published a paper at the end of last year on an individual who has no rods and cones but can still regulate their body clock by, their, by using, the light, using these new receptors to the light-dark cycle. Now... Um, 
it, it's, it's only with the discovery of these cells that we can ask questions like that. The assumption has been, well, you're depressed uh, because you can't see. And in fact, we're starting some studies to look at depression in individuals um, who have those, those novel cells but, but, but don't have the capacity to see. Um, Colin Donnelly has written in to say, how do full-spectrum bulbs, because he uses one, yeah. prevent seasonal affective disorder? <clears throat> That's a really good question. If the light is bright enough, it actually doesn't matter too much which wavelength it is. Um, w- when we say that these, these receptors are most sensitive to blue light... That's the wavelength. Um, if you were to lower the lower the, the, the light levels, it would be blue. That we could uh, the lowest level of blue light would still be effective. But if you're using a full spectrum lamp that's bright enough, it'll be it'll be perfectly good. So this is where people would perch themselves in front of a bright lamp in the morning. That's right, yes. And this works, does it? Uh, remarkably enough, it it works. And 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 now we're beginning to understand um, the mechanisms behind it. Along similar lines, we've had a question from Nasser Hazari on the forum. He says that I once heard that in order to avoid jet lag when travelling, and I think this is a tale you've probably heard before, you should shine a red light on the back of your knees. <laughs> is oh, this gosh. true? Now, let's settle this once let's, and for all. Let's kill this one dead. So in 98, a group of researchers at Cornell University suggested that red or light behind the knee would, would, would entrain the body cock, and this got huge amounts of publicity. Um, a lot of us thought it was nonsense at the time. Uh, it was published in Science, incidentally. Um, five studies around the world um, tried to replicate the findings uh, and all completely failed. Uh, it looks as though there was some artefact um, uh, in the experimental design of that, that original paper which was f- fundamentally flawed and um, they, they got it badly wrong. But it, it did cause a huge amount of commotion. Um, but it, let me assure you, it, 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 it is nonsense. <laughs> so Neil on the forums had a little idea. He says maybe jet lag fairies live in your bloodstream and they commute back and forth every day and if you shine a red light they think that's a stop sign so they stop. (laughs) Well that's something to think about. (laughs) Uh, Henry has written in Russell and says why are some people more productive in the morning? Because one thing that's come out of the body clock research is that there certainly are different species of people almost on there. People like me who will work late and cannot for the life of them get up and function in the morning. Probably part of that is a coffee addiction problem um, but I think there certainly is a body clock issue with me. Well Henry raises again a really exciting question. Um, We talked about those clock genes of which we think there are sort of 12 to 14 of them and tiny changes in those genes are now being associated with a a morning preference, larks, as distinct from an evening preference, those people that we would describe as, as owls. And you're absolutely right. There are some people, about 10% of the population, that like, like to get up very early. And we're talking sort of 5 o'clock in the morning, but then they go to bed very early, sort of 7 o'clock in the evening. Um, and we've got genes that we can map onto those different behaviours. In fact, there's one, there's one extraordinary study called Familial Advanced Sleep Phase Syndrome where it's been followed through five generations now. And it's one tiny amino acid uh, change in one of those proteins, one of those 14 uh, proteins that make up the clock. It's an extraordinary study. And we're now beginning to associate more and more subtle changes in these genes with morning and evening preference. I, I should say that this morning and evening preference does shift with time. Um, so as one sort of grows up from the age of 10 through adolescence into one's early 20s, there is this tendency to want to, want to go to bed later and later and later and get up 
um, uh, later and later. And that seems to be a real biological phenomenon. And, and there's some very important consequences, uh, I think, in terms of our educational systems that we might want to discuss as well. So maybe having classes later that, well, uh, the or evidence, something like that. Well, the evidence suggests from, from University of Toronto, they tested um, uh, pupils uh, mid-morning or mid-afternoon, and their scores went up by 10% in the mid-afternoon. And what was fascinating is that the older teachers <laughs> went down. <laughs> <laughs> Over the same time period. We've got a, a little odd one here from Ben P. Um, and he says that he, he commutes to work. He travels 40 minutes either way. And he tends to sleep as the train motion makes him drowsy. So sleeping on the train, not in his car, that would be bad. Um, but in all this time, he's only once slept through his stop. Most of the time, he wakes up just before his stop. Is this in some way linked to his body clock or is he just good? Well, well, what Ben is talking about, and I think many of us experience him, the classic one is that you wake up a few minutes before the alarm goes off in the morning. And this, this, the mechanisms behind this have been much discussed. If we jump from our species for a moment and talk about honeybees, honeybees will use their body clock almost like um, a daily events calendar. They will consult this internal clock to determine when they will visit uh, specific um, uh, types of flower at different times of the day. Um, so, for example, they'll, they'll visit one species at, let's say, 12 noon, and then another species two hours later. And so they're using their body clock to time specific daily events. And it's thought that we may be able to do the same. It's not absolutely clear, and there may be other mechanisms, but, but the, the evidence is pretty good that we're using... We, we can act a little bit like bees. Well, we've been talking about time. Unfortunately, we've sort of run out of it a little bit for, for now, Russell. That's Professor Russell Foster from Oxford University. He goes by the name The Clock Doc, for obvious reasons. If you'd like to ask him any questions, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani. Coming up, we'll be finding out why we can't remember most of our dreams. Diana O'Carroll is with us to solve this week's question of the week. We are, of course, talking about the science of time as it relates to living things. And we've heard about the human and mammalian body clock. Now we're going to find out about, bizarrely, the plant body clock. And with us from Oxford University is Harriet McWatters. Hello, Harriet. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining us. So it will probably amaze a lot of people to learn that, that plants also have a body, to- body clock and a sense of time. Yes, well... Um, Plants have a body clock which is set up in some ways very much like yours or mine because they have the same problem that you or I do, which is we live on a planet with a 24-hour day, whereas day and night. And so they need to know uh, what time it is so they can coordinate um, aspects of their daily lives, um, such as petal opening, with um, the rest of the world. So um, Russell has already mentioned bees. Um, Bees fertilise flowers, so a flower which has its um, flowers shut when a bee is visiting will not be pollinated and will not reproduce. Do the plants do this in the same way as the brain cells that Russell was talking about or are they using a totally different sort of clock machinery? The answer to that is both. Um, they Each plant cell um, contains the machinery um, for a clot which works in very much the same way as a clot Russell has described in animals in that there is a feedback loop where a protein eventually causes the switching off of its own production. But the actual genes and proteins involved in plants are completely different from the ones involved in animal clocks. Because of course we all evolved ultimately from some common ancestor, us and plants, because we share quite a lot of our genes, don't we? I mean, I I share, what, 60% 
percent of my DNA with a banana, and I'm not that exceptional. So why do plants have their own genes and we have different ones? Uh, the, the simple answer to that is we don't know. We do know that it appears that um, clocks are extremely important in that almost every multicellular organism we've looked at has a clock. But in the uh, four systems that we know best, which are the plant, the animal, the fungal clock, and also the blue green algae, the actual mechanisms are completely different, meaning that clocks are important enough to have evolved four times in different lineages. So it must give a massive advantage. It does, because it allows you to predict uh, what is going to happen later on, and so you're not um, caught by surprise every time the sun goes up. So if, uh, if you are a day-active animal, you can wake up and then start... Um, to hunt before the um, bef- as soon as day arrives, or if you are something which is going to be eaten by something which is going to come out, you can get, you can get back to your hiding place. So you can anticipate events rather than always having to respond to them. Plants, of course, also have a season because they have to do everything they need to do over the scope of a year, which is they need to make leaves, they need to grow, make some blossom, make fruit. effectively have sex to make fruit and then reproduce and they will have to do that in the scope of one year so how does a plant coordinate time through the whole plant uh Again, um, there are the, uh, the, fo- the clocks in the leaves appear to be detecting and measuring photoperiod, and then some signal is transferred from the leaf to the part of the plant which is going to produce uh, a flower, and that tells it, hang on, it's time to stop producing leaves and start producing reproductive tissues such as flowers. Uh, and this is happening in um, an individual plant, and it's also happening in a population of plants. So the clock in the plant leaf is detecting photoperiod in the world and then transmitting that information through the plant to the reproductive axis. Does this mean then that if we understand how that works, we could exploit it to, say, make plants think that they've got less time to grow than they have, so they put more effort into growing quicker? So we get more yield from a crop, for example. Yeah, potentially. Um, one, one of um, the big goals in agriculture is to reduce um, energy expenditure. And so convert, so removing the photoperiodic component from plant growth is actually very important. Um, a good example is chrysanthemums, which are extremely sensitive to photoperiod and also need to be produced at a particular time of year, um, uh, in, in November and then again at Christmas time. And so you need to produce um, plants using huge amounts of energy. If you could reduce the photoperiodic component of their response, they would grow regardless of the day length, simply if you gave them the right conditions. And if I take a plant which is well adapted to growing in one part of the world, it's used to having a certain length of day, say the equator, because time doesn't really change whether it's winter or summer there, and I put it in Scotland, where it's going to have very, very long, bright summers and very, very dark winters... Will that make a difference? It will make a difference. It might make less of a difference if you went that way than from Scotland down to the equator. Um, So tropical plants are uh, used to growing, as you say, with very equitable day lamps. Scottish plants require usually very much more light in the summertime. Um, And so, in fact, in in my garden at home, I have a horse chestnut seedling which grew from a conker I collected in my mother-in-law's garden in Scotland. And this poor tree sets um, leaf several weeks later than the local horse chestnuts in Oxford and sheds its leaves early in the season. Because one of the things Russell was saying was that, you know, our brains can retune our body clock. 
you've done the equivalent of a transatlantic flight for a conquer, but so, from Scotland down south, <laughs> and and your conquer can't reset. It, it doesn't Why? seem to, it doesn't seem to be able to reset. So it's got it's got an idea in its little in um, in each of its cells <laughs> what the critical day length is for producing. Um, leaves or shedding its leaves and it can't in uh, in one generation get over so this is something so the timing of leaf set is set in the genes and it's local to a particular population because scientists have shown that if you give a plant a really hard life uh, for a while then the progeny it produces express genes differently than if you give it a really good life because it's almost like it's patterning it's telling its offspring look you have to you're going to you're going to have a hard life you need to to be optimized to grow in a really bad environment so I, do you think the parent effectively wrote this into it i i, I think the parent wrote this in either we, we and we don't know from a single example whether it is maternal imprinting um such as you're suggesting or um a simple um, change in the genetic instructions um, such that you need 16 hours of light or 14 hours of light to produce your seeds. It could, it could be either. And just to, to finish, Harriet, obviously President Bush has suggested he wants to see people colonising Mars in the next 50 years. We know that plants are the best way to get energy from the sun and turn it into chemical energy that we can use. That means we need to take plants on space missions. Given what you've just said, what are the implications for taking plants from planet Earth into space and then also further afield? Uh, well, there's two, there's two things to consider. One is the different range of wavelengths that you get on Mars. So Earth plants are adapted to the range of wavelengths that we have here. They're very different in the margin atm atmosphere, which is one of the reasons Mars looks red. Also, the, the day length is different on Mars, so you would need to you would need to look into the effects upon day length of um, growing your plants. Thank you very much. That's Harriet McWatters, and she's from Oxford University, talking to us about the body clock, plants. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The naked scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with uh, me and Chris. And now it's time to bring on the dreamy Diana O'Carroll with a very dreamy question of the week. You love my introductions, don't you? <laughs> they get cheesier and cheesier every single time, don't they? Uh, anyway, we're going to be drifting off and then waking up again. Hi, my name is Paula Ovi. I'm from Johannesburg in South Africa. My question is about dreams. I was wondering why it's so difficult for us to remember our dreams when we wake up in the morning. So what exactly is happening to our memory when we sleep? My name is Professor Mark Blagrove and I'm Professor of Psychology at Swansea University where I run a sleep laboratory and also do investigations on dreaming and on the possible functions of REM sleep. People differ in whether or not they can remember their dreams and some people have a great deal of interest in their dreams though they have very vivid dreams or their level of anxiety or sleep quality results in, in people remembering dreams at different amounts each month, say. But in general, for all of us, dreams are very easily forgotten once we wake up if we don't consolidate them or if we don't, in other words, transfer them from short-term to long-term memory immediately upon waking. And there's a few theories of why that happens to all of us. One possibility is that our brain neurochemicals during sleep are very different from during wake time and so they don't allow us to consolidate memory. The other thing that's quite possible is that we don't pay attention to our dreams or are unable to do so during sleep so we don't consolidate what occurs to us during sleep so for example even people with sleep apnea who wake up repeatedly during the night don't know that that happens to them and similarly when we have a dream we're not consolidating it as it occurs 
indeed, if you have people having a long REM sleep period and you wake them up, once the REM sleep period gets over about 20 minutes, you don't find that dreams increase in length very much. So it's as if during the dream we forget what was happening. And the same happens immediately we wake up, that the dream just disappears. So it's all to do with memory consolidation. When you're awake, your brain picks up and remembers all sorts of useful information, especially, in my case, if it has something to do with chocolate or a new toy I can fix on my computer. When you're asleep, for the most part, your brain enters a special mode where memories are not inscribed deeply enough. We've had some comment on this in Second Life. JDV, JD Vegas Dreadlow, that's not your real name, I think, says it's easier to remember your dreams if you don't move at all when you wake up. And on the forum... Uh, on the forum Madida Scientia extolled the virtues of being paid to sleep for research. We've also had a call in from Anne from Heacham who says that she can actually return to her dreams. If she has a dream one night, she can return to the dream where she left off the night before. Fascinating. Do let us know what you think of that by uh, emailing us in. Lucky her. Well, I seem to remember lungs are quite important for breathing. So how can this be the case? Hello, my name is Jason Flakes and I'm calling from Annandale, Virginia. My question is, is how is it possible for a born-mean, flat-headed frog to have no lungs and breathe through its skin? Perhaps if we unlock the secret to lungless breathing, lungless breathing even, uh, we might be able to unlock the secret to eternal life. It sounds like you're doing a bit of lungless breathing there, Diana. <laughs> I know, running out. Hi, it's Jeff Blackwell calling in from Bundaberg in Queensland in Australia. The question is a week. I'd like to know if there are any life forms, plant, animal, fungus, whatever, that are effectively immortal. Deep breath. So if you know how the Bornean frog can breathe or where I can find my nearest fountain of youth, then send me an email to questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com or write it on the forum for all the world to see at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana. You can go back to sleep now, so to speak. (laughs) It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Katani. That was Diana O'Carroll, who does Question of the Week for us every week. If you think you've got a question that uh, is deserving of an analysis on Question of the Week, then do send it in, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Don't forget, we've got quick kitchen science on the way. Ben and Dave have been putting a glass over the top of a candle that was uh, lit and then asking you to find out what happened. There was more than just the obvious observation to pick up on, and Zanzibar Rothschild, who's in Second Life, says he did it, and uh, some condensation appeared on the glass. Very interesting. And also Joan in Braintree had a go and said, yep, the candle goes out, it left a mark on the glass. So there's one or two observations there. What do you think happens? If you know, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani. We're talking this week about the science of the body clock. We have Russell Foster and Harriet McWatters. They're both from Oxford University. One of them works on how the body clock works in you and me. The other works on how the body clock works in humans. Sorry, just joking, plants. And now it's time to go to those professional clockers off, Ben and Dave, with Jamie and Richard to find how they're getting on playing with fire for this week's kitchen science. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're still here at Steward's School in Harlow. We have a candle here and we've got a pint glass. You can use a jar or something like that. We're going to put the pint glass on top of the candle and see what happens. Apparently this will tell us something about how burning actually works. So, Jamie, would you mind picking up our pint glass? Yep. And putting it over the top of the candle. And, Richard, I want you to tell us what you can see. Okay. Right, let's just put it over the candle now. Nothing's happening at the moment, but the candle seems to be dying down a bit it's gone so the, the candle has now gone out yeah the candle has gone out okay and it looks to me dave like the jar has sort of missed it up a bit do you think it's full of smoke maybe oh uh, yeah probably full of smoke 
So, Dave, is it just a glass full of smoke we have now? If you take it off and look at it, look inside, can you see there's something on the inside of the jar? Yeah, there's condensation on there. We put the glass on top, the candle went out, but it seems to actually have filled with water vapour rather than smoke. Why would that be, Dave? Well, there isn't actually any water in the candle until it burns. The candle is made up of wax, and wax is made up of two things, carbon and hydrogen, possibly with a bit more oxygen. When you react that with oxygen, when you burn it, the carbon's going to turn into carbon dioxide, and the hydrogen's going to get turned into water, H2O. So burning allows the carbon and the hydrogen in the candle to react with the oxygen in the air around it, and this reaction creates water as a byproduct. Yeah, that's right, and that's what you can see on the inside of the glass. But if a flame is constantly producing water, why doesn't it just put itself out? The reason why water will put a flame out is because it will take heat away from the flame so it gets cold enough that the reaction slows down and it stops burning. But if the water is already really, really hot, it's a gas, it's steam, it doesn't cool it down very much, so it'll keep burning. So how come we could show this using a, a cold glass? How did that trap the water? When air's hot, it can contain a lot more water than when it's cold. So when the hot air meets the cold glass, it's going to cool down, the water's going to come out of the vapour phase, turn into condensation on the side of the glass. So if burning is a chemical reaction that produces water, do we produce water in things like car engines and that sort of thing? Yes, you'll produce water in car engines, anything which is burning a hydrocarbon like wax or petrol on the space station or in the space shuttle. They generate power using fuel cells, which take hydrogen and oxygen, react them together in a more controlled way than actually burning, and this produces water, and the astronauts drink it. So we get energy from reacting the two together, and the byproduct is water, which means the astronauts can keep drinking. Yep. Fantastic. So, Richard, what do you think? Did you know that, that flames create water? Uh, no, I didn't really, know. What do you think of doing a kitchen science? Yeah, it's really good, really interesting, fun. Yeah, great. Do you think you'll show anyone at home? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's quite easy to do at home. Well, thank you ever so much for being involved this week, and that's all we have time for for Kitchen Science. But we'll be back with more very soon, so it's goodbye from me, it's goodbye from Dave. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Jamie and Richard. Goodbye. Bye. Have it, flames make water, and Ben and Dave will be back next week with more Kitchen Science. We had a couple of people trying at a home, Joan in Braintree, sort of mark on the glass, so not quite right there. But um, from Second Life, Cryptic Fortune Sorbet and Zanzibar Rothschild both said they saw condensation. So well done to you guys. Thanks, Kat. It is The Naked Scientists, and we are talking about the body clock and about time as it relates to living organisms. Got lots of questions for you. Uh, this one's interesting, Russell. Um, this person, Jennifer P, says, do we sleep better in blocks of four hours? On the whole, no. Uh, it depends uh, on, on the individual, but most of the time uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eight-hour block. Um, sometimes you can separate it in the middle and, uh, you know, with, with a slight waking up phase, but then you go back to sleep again. But on the whole, no. Quick question here from Jeremiah, who says, can you tell me the difference between hibernation and aestivation? Um, hibernation, they're very much the same thing. They're periods of dormancy to avoid um, inclement conditions. Hibernation is um, usually when an animal is trying to avoid winter. Um, aestivation is um, in hot countries where it's trying to avoid summer. So it's avoiding the worst times of year. Thank you, Harry. Got a question here for you, Russell. Jane has called in and said... Is melatonin any use for insomnia? I guess what she's asking is, what is melatonin? Does it work? Melatonin is a, is a hormone produced from the pineal gland, and it's highly regulated by light. It's produced at night. Um, there are two bits of evidence to suggest that it might be useful. One, if you take melatonin, about 70% of people, they'll fall asleep. And two, it may help you also shift your body clock. So the evidence emerging is, yes, it may help you sleep. 
But is it harmful? Um, we don't have any evidence that it's harmful. I certainly wouldn't recommend using it without um, discussing it with your, your, with your GP first. Very quick one here. Do bacteria sleep or have a pattern to their activity? That's from Bruce Rogers. Um Ordinary bacteria such as you would find in your gut, um, probably not. Um, there is a class of blue-green blue algae, which are often called cyanobacteria, which have um, very strong circadian rhythms. And Harriet, we've got a question here from Sylvia in Ipswich. She says, can trees or plants feel? For instance, what would happen if you pulled a branch off or something? So, hi, Sylvia. Um, yeah, plants can detect uh, it when you damage them in some way. Uh, they're usually more sensitive to uh, things like caterpillars eating them, which uh, happens in their natural life. So, for example, an oak tree which has been attacked by caterpillars will respond by um, producing uh, tannins in its leaves, which makes the leaves bitter. What's even more interesting is that uh, trees adjacent to the one that's being attacked can somehow detect um, some signal and will also start to produce tannins in their leaves even before the caterpillars have been eaten. So given that, I think they can almost certainly detect if a branch has been cut off. Uh, the problem is that they're not, they don't really have any response to, to that except um, grow another branch. Harriet, thank you very much. Right, well, that's it. I'm afraid we have run out of time. So I have to say a very big thank you to Harriet McWatters and also Russell Foster. They're both from the University of Oxford. And, of course, to our own production team here at The Naked Scientist. That's Ben Valsler, Petra Minch, Diana O'Carroll, Dave Ansell and, of course, Dr Kat Arney. Now, next week, strap on your running shoes because we are going to take a look at the science of the Olympics, including finding out how performance-enhancing drugs work and also how scientists have developed ways to catch the people who are using them. Also, how altitude training can boost your sprinting ability and how the new footwear and body suits that are being produced can knock literally seconds off your time and also put metres on your long jump. So if you have any questions about the science of the Olympics, then send them to me, chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a great week. Thank you for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.